primary care knowledge boost, recurrent urinary tract infections in non-pregnant women. Welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we have the first of two episodes about urological symptoms in women. Yes, we speak to Ian Pierce, who is a consultant urologist at um, MRI in Manchester. In this episode, he talks to us about recurrent UTIs, uh, which are urinary tract infections, um, in the context mostly of non-pregnant females. Yeah, we go through what a urinary tract infection is and uh, what makes them recurrent versus relapsing. Uh, And we talk about how to assess someone with recurrent UTIs and what the risk factors are before we then go on and talk about red flags uh, for more sinister causes. Um, We also then cover the management options for recurrent UTIs, um, going from conservative possibilities uh, and then go into a detailed dive into antibiotic prophylaxis. (laughs) Yeah, we really um, asked a lot of questions that have been burning in our minds for a while, so it was nice to go into that. And we also get his opinion about who to refer into urology. Uh, We hope you find it as useful as we did. Um, So we always start off with a nice easy question, um, which is, can you introduce yourself for the listeners and give us a little bit about your background? My name is Ian Pearce. I'm a consultant urological surgeon at Manchester Royal Infirmary in the Northwest. I've been in post for uh, my 20th year and I have a specialist interest in um, functional urology, including urinary tract infections, urinary incontinence and men's health. Perfect, which is exactly what we want you for today. Um, So we are going to talk all about recurrent UTIs in non-pregnant women mostly today. Um, So we thought it's best to start with a definition of what a UTI is, or maybe more importantly, what it is not. Thanks. So uh, UTI, urinary tract infection, the reality is that this is a bacterial colonisation really of anywhere in the urinary tract. So it could be palynephritis, it could be orchitis. But I think for the purposes of today, what we're really talking about is the lower urinary tract infection. So symptoms that one would classically associate with cystitis type picture, urinary frequency, burning when patient passes urine, uh, maybe they get up at night, pass urine, have a bit of nocturia. And it wouldn't be uncommon for patients to experience transient urge-related urinary incontinence due to inflammation in the bladder. Brilliant. And then when does it cross over to recurrent? Whenever we talk about recurrent UTIs, what would that be? So recurrent UTIs uh, are, well, in fact, NICE offers a definition, which is two urinary tract infections in six months or three in 12 months. And that's that's usually what we would consider, if you like, the upper limit of um, normal, if you could, if anything like that could be normal. So and by that, we would say, well, actually, if you're having that level of urinary tract infection frequency, then we would look to investigate to determine whether there are any risk factors which may be putting a patient at risk. That's really useful to refresh yeah. <laughs> on, on that definition. Um, so how common are recurrent urinary tract infections in women? Uh, I think we see quite a lot of them, but um, have you got any statistics around them and, and about the risk factors as well? Yeah, so uh, I think uh, between 50 and 60% of women can expect a single UTI throughout their life. So UTI, UTIs are incredibly common. Recurrent UTIs, anything up to approximately 20% of women will experience recurrent UTIs, uh, you know, according to that definition that we talked about. Uh, and I've and I think probably before we uh, talk about the risk factors, it's quite it would be useful, I think, to just tease out the difference between a recurrent and a relapsing UTI. Um, because it, for it to be a recurrent UTI, we would really expect that the patient would have a, a sterile or a clear MSU in between episodes. Because if you have a patient who has a UTI, stops antibiotics, and then a few days later develops 
symptoms of another UTI, that is more likely to be a relapsing or an inadequately treated UTI. So ideally, and I think we'll probably get onto that a bit later on in terms of investigations, ideally patients should have a, an MSSU after treatment as well to show that they've been completely treated and effectively treated. So about 20% of people will have recurrent uh, UTIs and risk factors, particularly in the UK, the, the big two risk factors are dehydration and, and sexual intercourse. They're, they're the two big ones that people will often point to as their trigger events. There are other risk factors, of course, urinary stone disease. Infection is very commonly associated with that. Uh, any anatomical abnormalities also pose a risk factor because that may cause static urine, which in turn, of course, causes uh, an infection risk. Diabetes, immunosuppression, all of these would be risk factors. And I, and I guess, suppose lastly, also, we'd have to consider foreign bodies, in, including urinary catheters, which are a risk factor for infection. Although they, they're a sort of separate group, really, because we wouldn't just treat those patients on the basis of a urine test. They would have to have significant symptoms as well. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it makes it quite complicated. Yeah. The other thing that was occurring to me is proving that urinary tract infection has gone after treatment because um, for a sort of straightforward urinary tract infection for a non-pregnant woman, sometimes if it's a first one and it's not recurrent, we don't often do an MSU. Yeah, and I, th- and I think that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, we're talking really about the recurrent patients who yeah. we really should be getting as many MSSUs as we can, both pre and post treatment. But but you're quite right. If you've got a patient with a, a single episode of UTI who's got all the classical symptoms, well, you know, and they resolve with antibiotic therapy, then yes, of course, there's probably no need to recheck. And then just thinking about red flags now. So when should we worry about sinister causes of recurrent urinary tract infections? I think in general, of course, the red flag that we'll be talking about would be visible hematuria. So that in itself would convert a UTI into what we would class as a complicated UTI. Okay. And therefore would mandate investigation. I think the other thing I would uh, urge people to look out for is true bladder pain because uh, bladder discomfort is quite common, of course. They get superhuman tenderness and discomfort, but but true bladder pain, it, it would, we would also look to perhaps uh, consider that to be not exactly a red flag, but may, maybe a pink flag. Can you um, elaborate on that just in terms of bla- what's the difference between bladder pain and other true bladder pain and other types of suprapubic pain? Absolutely. So, when patients have a sort of uncomplicated cystitis type picture, they will often say that they feel tender to the touch in the lower abdomen. And the classic thing they might say is that sitting down is a bit uncomfortable. And if they're in a car and they've got a, the lower part of the seatbelt is pressing, that's also uncomfortable. But pain that is quite clearly uh, without palpation, if you like, and without pressure. And classically will sort of come on if the bladder gets is allowed to get full, then we would think about something else as, as well. And, and in particular, we'll be looking at as to whether or not this might be a bladder pain syndrome type issue as well. Yeah. Um, and the other one that we um, that I always have to look up and I did have to look up before we recorded was um, the red flag that's not necessarily that relevant to this chat. But just to remind myself about bladder cancer red flags uh, was the one where if you're over 60 and there's unexplained non-visible hematuria in the urine dipstick um, and they've also got symptoms, so dysuria or ra- raised white cell count on the blood test. Um, that that's a red flag for bladder cancer and that needs a two-week wait as well. Yeah, that's right, Sarah. That's always really hard to remember. Um, and it, are there any other red flags? Have we cut you off too early with that? Or are you happy? No, I think that's the main thing. I, mean, I think uh, you know, it's the old uh, medical medical school thing, isn't it? The visible hematuria. 
Yeah, I thought in the context of a UTI, I thought that was okay. It sounds like they all need to be investigated. Yeah, I, in the context of UTI, people say, well, it, it's it's bound to be because of the UTI, which, which is almost certainly true in most cases. But having blood and urine with UTI makes it complicated. And therefore, that should be looked at to, to ensure there isn't anything like stone disease going on, that sort of thing. So so we would we would investigate that. It's a bit like having a UTI in a child or in a man. Okay. By definition, they're complicated and they should be looked at. So so if there's kind of no other types of symptoms otherwise, an, a standard referral or do you ever want to see those people urgently on a two-week wait? No, I think the two-week wait would be painless immature. But if you've got a UTI with hematuria, then they would just get sent up to, to be investigated, more really to make sure that there isn't anything for the future for them. That's really useful. Thank you. Um, and thinking about referrals to urology, are there any other people that um, you would think would be appropriate for primary care to refer to yourselves? Yeah, I, I think if you have patients who have got known anatomical abnormalities, maybe they've got a horseshoe kidney, maybe you know that sort of thing. Maybe they've got uh, they were born with uh, abnormal anatomy, bladder extrophy, that sort of thing. Then I think all of those patients would, would benefit from urological investigation and, and perhaps uh, oversight, if you like. And I suppose I I also think that if patients have had fairly significant upper tract involvement, if it has spread up and they've got the palynephritic picture, if that's a recurrent theme, then again, we would look at that. I think that's reasonable as well. Thanks. That's great. So if we kind of go um, from the beginning um, of someone's kind of journey um, and they would come and see you or come to see a, a, a GP um, or someone working in primary care um, and they do have a history of previous urinary tract infections and they're coming with um, with similar symptoms, what's, what's your approach? What are you thinking? So I think the first thing that we would like to know is, um, well, there are two big starting things. The first is whether this is purely confined to the lower tract or whether there's any upper tract involvement, whether there are any history of rigors, any systemic involvement, that sort of thing, which would instantly mean that this is a patient that probably needed investigation, regardless of how often they were having their, their infections. If it's confined to the lower tract, uh, we'd also like to be known, you know, how long it's been going on, what is the magnitude, how, how, how frequently is the patient getting those attacks. And again, going back to the difference between recurrent and relapsing, it, it's also important to know what the time frame is between resolution of one episode and the commencement of a second episode. And if that's very close, whether that's also been verified with, with an MSSU. I think there are lots of patients who come up with a label of recurrent UTIs who actually have got recurrent symptoms of a UTI and then may not have always been MSSU proven. Which, which I think is quite difficult, particularly because, of course, you can get a box of 100 dipsticks for about £8 on Amazon. And self-testing seems to be pretty rife out there. But you probably know that more than I do. So it's quite useful to have the list of MSSUs looking at the organism culprits, that sort of thing, to see if it's the same organism every time, see if it's anything different. So that's all very important. I think then we would look on to whether there are risk factors, you know, what are their what are their drinking habits like? What are their voiding habits? Are they are they the sort of the classic teenager who goes to the bathroom before they leave the house and then holds on for eight or ten hours until they get back in the house? You know, because all of that that is a risk factor. So that sort of voiding pattern is an important thing to to tease out. It's quite it's important to ask about triggers. And as I said before, intercourse is the, is the biggest trigger. And it's also useful to know which antibiotic they've been taking their recurrent episodes and how quickly they, they those episodes resolve so are they taking a three-day course and finding themselves straight back to normal or are they finding that their symptoms linger and 
course, it's quite it's important to know that just because their symptoms linger doesn't necessarily mean their infections lingered. Because undoubtedly, once you've had a UTI, you're left with a degree of bladder inflammation, which could give you exactly the same symptoms. So it, it, that's quite a nice thing to try and tease out. It's not uncommon for ladies to give you a, a previous history. In fact, it happened to me today. I had a patient with recurrent UTIs. And just at the end of the consultation, she said to me, I just wonder whether I might need another urethral dilatation because I had one 20 years ago. So, you know, sometimes uh, that bypasses us. But obviously, if you've got a history like that, then these things can be recurrent. And once you've kind of um, dove into um, that history and you've gathered all of that information, is there any specific examination that you reckon is important to do and then any investigations? Yeah, I mean, we would uh, certainly examine the patients, make sure they didn't have any ongoing tenderness, particularly in the loins and over the over the bladder. But a post-nutrition scan, I think, is really invaluable. That instantly allows us to determine whether or not one of the biggest risk factors is present or not. In other words, do they have a residual volume of urine, which is literally just a, a very stagnant, warm culture medium for organisms? So. I think it's also useful to do an internal examination as well, particularly in the older age group, to have a look at the, the state of the tissues, whether there's a significant atrophy, that's that sort of thing, which may be contributing. Um, you know, and that obviously will also go hand in hand with their menopausal state, which is important to to know about. Um, and you mentioned about MSSUs, um, so we're looking to do before and after. Yes, if they're recurrent, yes, we would. And uh, it's always nice, uh, particularly if you've had recurrent episodes or if they've involved the upper tract, it's always nice to know what their renal function is like as well, to make sure there hasn't been any ongoing scarring uh, or reduction in renal function. That's pretty uncommon. Most people with scarring would have had recurrent infections you know, pre-puberty, you know, when, when things were still developing. So, but it's nice to know and have a a kidney function estimation. Equally, it's nice to exclude diabetes uh, and uh, do glucose testing. Those patients who are not known to be have diabetes. So, once you've ruled out all the concerning potentials, um, where do you start with the management options? Okay, so always conservative first, because quite a lot of the time when you are going through the history of the patients, something will dawn on them. They might say to you, oh, "Actually, my urine is a bit dark," you know, and I and I. I'm not going to the toilet very frequently. So once they've aired that, it's quite easy to sort of launch straight into conservative measures, really. So the, well, everybody with recurrent UTIs should be given a sort of a generalised uh, help sheet, if you like, giving them some, some advice. And that advice would be things like uh, showering rather than bathing, avoiding perfume products uh, below, you know, below the belt, as it were, in that area. Of course, always wiping front to back, wearing cotton underwear, maintaining good hydration um, and another particularly if it's a trigger we'd also ask them to pass urine either before or immediately after intercourse if they could yeah so most people will will take that on because most of those conservative measures are actually pretty easy to do compliance is usually pretty good with that once you've gone past that and if they're still getting recurrent UTIs then I think you, we're looking at various more invasive therapies so it might be pharmacotherapy with antibiotics and of course they can be given in one of three main ways that it's either self-start prophylaxis or even rotational prophylaxis and if you have prophylactic antibiotics that can either be at the time of the trigger so it might be just exactly when they have intercourse or as soon afterwards as they can manage or it might just be a single antibiotic low dose on a daily basis and there are other things of course it's not just antibiotics we can use a substance called methanamine which it helps again to reduce uh, to reduce recurrent urine tract infections there is a publication coming out in the BMJ before too long, which will say that that's 
not inferior to prophylactic antibiotics. So that, that allows us another way of, of combating it. And there are bladder installations as well. So mainstay installations are usually for bladder pain syndrome, but actually some of them are licensed also for recurrent unitract infections. But that's a little bit more invasive, of course, because it involves catheterization. Hmm. And what are they what are they using? What are they instilling? <laughs> so it's actually a replacement for the glycosaminoglycan layer, the gag layer. The the easiest way of thinking about it actually is for bladder pain syndrome. Patients are thought well, they do have a deficient inner layer, which is essentially the layer that prevents the potassium leaking out to the pain cells, and and it's just a marker really of bladder health. And if you can replace that layer, as most of these installations are aiming to do, then actually that means that your bladder is less vulnerable. Uh, to colonization and, and, and recurrent infection. Yeah, that's, that's nice to know a bit of the actual underlying pathophysiology. Yeah. So there's a couple of other bits that Sarah's noted down um, to get your opinion on. So um, things like NSAIDs and vaginal estrogen in terms of treatment options. Yeah, definitely, definitely uh, vaginal estrogens uh, if there's um, vaginal atrophy, because of course, all, all infections begin in one way, and that is they ascend up, up the urethra. So uh, as a woman goes through a hormone change, what happens is that the the oil that's secreted in the urethra to allow the folds of the urethra to close and give that protective antibacterial um, barrier, if you like, that becomes deficient. So if you can replace that, that, that's that's great. And of course, the other thing that happens is that your normal protective bacteria that uh, that colonize the vagina in that area are also lost because the the acidity changes, the pH of the vaginal tissue changes through through menopause. So yes, I think that they're they're a great uh, therapy for those people who are in that that stage. Yes, non non steroidals. Yes, particularly if they've got those classic inflammatory uh, sort of symptoms where they've still got that griping uh, bladder spasm type pain. That's quite useful. Equally, I also think that antimuscarinics and beta three agonists are also quite useful, particularly in that phase where a patient has finished antibiotics but may still have some symptoms due to the inflammatory process left behind. And that's not it's not uncommon for that to go on for quite some time. And so anticholinergics and beta 3 agonists are much more effective at symptom relief than continued antibiotic therapy in the absence of an infection. So you could try that just for a short period and see if it gives relief after the infection? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. You could try it just for you know three or four weeks to make sure they've just given a bit of symptom relief. Provided, of course, they don't have a large residual volume as their risk factor. Yeah, because they'll be relaxing their bladder and allowing it to fill more. Um, just, just in terms of clarifying, anticholinergics, so the things like tolterazine or oxybutynin. Yeah, absolutely. And again, NICE will tell you oxybutynin first, but that's because it's more cost effective. But uh, I mean, the good thing about oxybutynin is that it does work. And although it does give patients a dry mouth, it's incredibly flexible because the, the dosing is is quite wide you know you could start on two and a half milligrams but you could go up to 30 milligrams whereas most of the others are either one or two twice a day what's the beta three now this is so beta three agonist is uh mirabegron ah i was gonna guess that one <laughs> should have now <laughs> it achieves the same thing just by a different route and, it, and of course then it doesn't give you that side effect profile uh, dry eyes dry mouth but of course they do have to have their blood pressure monitored if they're taking that perfect so definitely antibiotic prophylaxis uh, seems to cause a lot of questions, I think, in primary care. So we thought we would um, put quite a few down here just to clarify some things um, that we find difficult. So first off, you kind of talked about this, but when would you consider antibiotic prophylaxis? So I, I, I think if we're talking about daily prophylaxis, 
then I think these the classic patient would be someone that has tried conservative measures who doesn't necessarily have an obvious trigger factor, such as intercourse, where you could literally just take a, at the point of trigger, antibiotic single dose. And those for whom you're, you're confident that there is no other risk factor associated with it, so no residual volume, that sort of thing. Um, and if they're having UTIs significant enough to impact negatively on them, that they're happy to take a small dose of antibiotic, then they're the ideal patient. Some patients who would quite reasonably benefit from it actually don't like to take it simply because they don't like the thought of taking a daily antibiotic. And that, that again, is where the methanamine will, would come in because it's not an antibiotic, but it achieves the same outcome. Yeah. So when you prescribe antibiotics, how do you counsel people on this? Because we had a lovely chat with uh, Dr. Anya Lever, who's a GP, who was the antibiotic lead for Trafford. And she was saying that um, trying to explain to patients that you're not really using it for the antibiotic effect. It was more to rest the bladder in terms of sort of anti-inflammatory. But um, what, what do you normally say? <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's a good way of thinking about it, because I, I think there's no doubt that once you've had a UTI and you've got a degree of inflammation in the bladder, then you are much more susceptible to another UTI. So the trick is for a patient to maintain a UTI-free status for as long as possible in order for that bladder to get back to maximum or optimal health. So the way I liken it is a, is a bit like taking a castle by storm. So if you, if you had a castle, you would need fewer soldiers to protect that castle, and that's the antibiotic prophylaxis. Compared to if you had a UTI or if you're trying to take a castle, you need much more antibiotic and obviously much more, many more soldiers. So it, it's trying to get around that prevention cure type uh, mentality, really. So the, the other thing people often worry about is that if, if I take antibiotics every day, I'm going to end up with, I, I will end up being resistant and I will end up having thrush. So I think it's really key to tell them that they're actually taking a much smaller dose, much less frequently than they would need if they were actually being treated for UTI. And with the um, people who are on that low dose daily antibiotic, how um, do you decide how long that they should stay on that for? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and to one which I don't think there is a, a scientific answer. So, so I think it is a bit of trial and error. I would say that if you've been infection free for twelve months, your bladder should have recovered from any insults, regardless of how significant it was. So your bladder's health would be optimised, and I think then you're at a good stage to say, okay, let's come off the antibiotics and see how we go with conservative measures. And I would always counsel them to say, we, we might get it wrong and you might get an infection straight away. And you might then think, fine, go back on it. Equally, you might get a, you might get a UTI 12 months later. And if they get them at that frequency, then that may be more acceptable than having a daily antibiotic. So, so I would say about a year. So say like somebody's had no infections whilst they've had their prophylactic antibiotics. But they, um, but then as soon as they stop them a couple of months later, they then have another one. I, I think we would be quite pragmatic about that. There are, uh, I'd be very easy to say to the patient, actually, it's been pretty quick. Why don't you go back on them again and see how you feel? But equally, the patient might turn around and say, actually, I'll, I'll just see how it goes. I'll see if I get another one, which I think, again, is very reasonable. So I don't think I would like there to be any hard and fast rules because lots of patients have vastly different views of of prophylactic antibiotics and recurrent UTIs. I think that's the thing is it, it depends on the case, doesn't it, really? So it's good to know that, that it will be an individualised approach as well. Yes, that's the phrase. 
Um, what a, a person who is on prophylactic antibiotics but seems to get a urinary tract infection whilst they're taking those? How do you manage that? Yeah, the, I think this is the really, the really important question because I think probably of, of everything, this is possibly a thing that we all get not muddled up with, but the practicality of treating a patient like this means that we, it's quite difficult to deliver the care that we think should, should, should be delivered. So, in an ideal world, if a patient was on antibiotic prophylaxis and they got a UTI or symptoms of a UTI, we would absolutely get a urine sample first and send that away and know what we were treating before we before we did anything. But of course, we don't live in the ideal world. So what tends to happen is we try and get the, the urine away and then we would best guess the antibiotics. Almost certainly it wouldn't be the prophylactic antibiotic, so we would choose something different. If um, If it was a urinary tract infection, we would then know what was causing that and its sensitivities. And the next question we have to ask ourselves then is, is that the correct prophylactic antibiotics that we were previously on, or do we need to change that in view of that breakthrough UTI? And again, there isn't a firm answer to that. If you chose to, if we chose to change it because of a single breakthrough, then it's quite conceivable that they may get a breakthrough of the original organism because, because don't forget, prophylactic antibiotics should also be decided upon on the basis of MSSU results anyway. So we're already on evidence-based prophylaxis, then we have a breakthrough, and then we, we might change that. So it is a little bit of trial and error. So I think, and then the, ne the next step up from that is if you're getting recurrent UTIs, breakthrough UTIs, we would then look to involve a rotational basis. And that would usually be an antibiotic for one month, another for a second month, a third for a third month, and then back to the first one. So we'd rotate it around. So we've got the last scenario, I think, of all the antibiotic prophylaxis questions, <laughs> but it's a very common problem. Um, so if we've got somebody who's been kept on an prophylactic antibiotics for years and we say, okay, you've been on it for 12 months, everything's been good, should we try coming off? Look at the amount of medic medicines you're on, let's let's try and do some reduction. Um, and they say, no, the urologist told me to take them, uh, don't want to stop them. <laughs> Any advice about how to counsel people coming off? I'm tremendously reassured that people are actually listening to us. So uh, I almost feel like I should say nothing about this. <laughs> Shows good compliance. Yeah, yeah that's right, which, which is quite rare, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I think, again, it's all about persuading them that their risk is now as good as it's going to get. You know, they've had a year or, or however long it is of being infection-free. There clearly are downsides to taking you know, multiple medications, not at least of all uh, drug interactions. And I think the, the key really is to say to them, look, this is probably as low as your risk is going to be. It probably isn't that much greater than any, anybody else in the normal population because, you know, hopefully they'll have had a string of investigations to show they haven't got any obvious risk factors. So I think it is probably just about trying to persuade them that way. Equally, the other thing I'd say is we do occasionally get letters from primary care just to say, we'd like to, we'd like to do this. It, are you happy with that? And, and I think that's quite a good way of sort of saying to the patients, the resistant patients, you know, we've spoken to we've spoken to the urologist, um, and he or she is happy with with that plan. Perfect. Yeah, that's lovely. I'm just I'm just thinking if there's anything else that I want to ask before um, we get to the end. And there was something else that had occurred to me. Oh yes, with the um, uh, with the the trigger antibiotics, the kind of one-off antibiotics that people use. Um, I'm guessing that the decision on which antibiotic to use is based off the kind of most recent MSSU result. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's 
that that's really important because obviously we don't want to be playing people with uh, home start or you know trigger antibiotics unless it's the appropriate one but they have to have a good supply and they've got to have quite good um counseling to know that if they take an antibiotic that's great but if their symptoms come then they need to know how much you know of a treatment dose they need to take so we would i would usually say the earlier you start the antibiotic the shorter the dose you may get away with two days, but if you've still got symptoms, don't hesitate to take three. Because, of course, the, this this group of patients is quite difficult to get an MSU from. And, and equally, I think we'd all have to accept that not everybody is in a position where they've got antibiotics with them whenever they have intercourse. And life just isn't always that planned and people quite naturally forget things, don't they? No, it's true. And it's nice that you can do that approach with people. But I guess you need people that are pretty, pretty compliant and understanding of what you're trying to tell them because it is quite complex compared to the other situations. It is, yes. And of course, what you don't want is to get into the situation where they are literally just taking loads of antibiotics without ever sending an MSSU and without ever thinking, oh, maybe there is something else that I need to think about. So you're right. It's not suitable for everybody and it's not suitable for everyone just with a simple trigger either. You do have to select as you do for everything, I guess. I think that's my question's exhausted. Have you got anything else, Sarah? I think my question is a bit of a can of worms, (laughs) so I don't know whether to ask it for (laughs) you. But it's um, it occurs to me I struggle when as there's a it's not a one-off. There's a few people I've seen where they've been quite young, so late teens, early twenties, and they've got sterile recurrent cystitis episodes. And you have done the STI screen, and you've and then all the MSUs have come back negative, and they've got this kind of really proper cystitis and these bouts of it and they respond to antibiotics and can they have another one and then you look through the msus like oh goodness there's nothing going on here any advice for that scenario i don't know if that sounds familiar to to either of you you're correct a a huge bag of a huge can of worms (laughs) um i think the difficulty here is knowing whether or not there's actually something else underlying Mm -hmm. you know so whether have they got a chronic inflammatory condition of the bladder they could be bladder pain syndrome they may just be overactive um, and have something that triggers them off. So, so I think there's partly that. I think also, uh, and I, I quite often say to patients, you know, we, we don't know everything. Who knows? In 20 years time, the discussion may be in hindsight, this has definitely happened or that's definitely happened. But our, our knowledge is obviously incomplete as it is for, for a huge, most things in medicine. So I don't think it's, I wouldn't be ashamed of saying to the patients, this is probably the extent of our knowledge, uh, unfortunately. Um, there are lots of other uh, things that are going on that are not exactly on the periphery, but they, they certainly are not mainstream. So there's also that this theory of having a sort of a bacterial, a deep bacterial culture or a bacterial broth. That's this sort of thing of, in other words, is our ability to pick up UTIs with an MSSU, is that completely perfect? And, I, and I'm, I'm confident the answer is no. So you know, no test is 100%. So they probably do have UTIs. We just, we just haven't been able to show that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really interesting. I'm kind of glad I did open that because that's that's quite nice. <laughs> Thank you. Great. So, for we're satisfied, then we'll just ask our last question, which is, um, what do you want the um, the listeners to take away from today? What points do you want them to remember? So, so I think um, the first thing I'd say is that complicated UTIs, hematuria, anatomical abnormalities, men, children, that sort of thing, they would need investigation. So, I think that's probably the first thing. I I'd highlights that trigger factors are pretty common dehydration and intercourse are the most common in the uk and that if you're going to put somebody on prophylactic antibiotics then it really should be on the basis of mssus so it should be evidence-based 
And I think the probably the last one I would say is that if you've got a recurrent UTI patient, then an MSSU after treatment is really, really important. So normally we I would say finish the course of antibiotics and then 48 hours later, let, let's take another MSSU so that we can document that you have been completely cleared. That's great. Thank you so much, Ian. It was a whistle-stop tour, but you've done very well because we've just fired questions at you. So thank you. No, not at all. Pleasure. Pleasure. So that was amazing to chat to Ian today. Um, what are your learning points, Lisa? Um, I think initially it was just good to um, chat through what constitutes uh, urinary tract infection and then a recurrent one, um, and then also differentiate it from relapsing. Um, I think going back to those basics was quite helpful for me. Yeah, exactly. I I found that really useful, the whole thing about recurrent infections and, and having the negative MSUs to prove that they aren't relapsing, that actually they are cleared and they are recurrent. Yeah, and how many urinary tract infections can count as recurrent um, so two in six months and three in 12 months it's been a while since I've looked that one up so that was really useful <laughs> yeah it was um and just like you say there about the MSSUs and how important they actually are if you're in a recurrent kind of picture the before and the after yeah that was useful to just revisit and to get his take on and to actually see why it's important to do that like you say um so that was quite good yeah yeah when we were talking later about the, those patients, those tricky patients with the um, sterile uh, dysuria, that was really interesting, his take on that as well, because he must see quite a lot of them as well. But yeah, then also thinking about the risk factors again, just to, to remind myself, I don't know how much uh, I'm thinking about all of the risk factors. So that was really useful to go through dehydration, sexual in- intercourse, stones, anatomical reasons, diabetes, immunosuppression, and yeah, and catheters as well. So it was a really good recap. Um, and then um, also the mention about bladder pain. Yeah, and um, we talked about that pain. and what true bladder pain is um, versus the kind of super pubic discomfort. I thought that was really yeah. good. Yeah, and that it is a worrying sign. Yeah, and and then our million questions on prophylactic antibiotics. <laughs> um, so it was good to go over the different options and and how you go about doing it. And given them the scenarios about what happens if you get a UTI, um, if someone's taking the antibiotics, um, yes, yeah, so I just I thought it was quite good to be able to fire the questions at him and get that information and see how he does it yeah um i'm excited about um, the other options as well really sort of considering other things and yeah i'm gonna what's it i'm gonna bookmark a help sheet one of the conservative management summaries i think i'll, I'll do a little googling and find one if i find a good one i'll <laughs> put a link, link it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> And it will be really interesting to find out about the the other options, like the methamphetamine, as you say, because he did um, he did mention that BMJ article um, that was going to be coming out about it. Um, so I guess we'll just watch this space and see um, see what it says um, when it appears. But um, we did have a little look at the G Triple M G guidelines and the Nice guidance, and it's not on there quite as yet um, that we could see but we have found a 2019 guidelines and practice resource so we can put a link to that in the episode description for any listeners who want to have a little read in the meantime um, about that as a as an option um also the fact that um a uti with visible hematuria is a complicated uti um it's slightly embarrassing that i needed reminding about that but uh, i think that i'm not the only one so hopefully it's yeah but it's a good reminder yeah it was a good reminder um so yeah, we'll be back with um, Ian for another episode um, where he's going to talk to us about um, overactive bladder and continence issues in women. But in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us in any way, you can. Um, there are a couple of different ways that you can do that. And we'll put the links all in the episode description as normal for you. Yeah, perfect. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Mm-hmm.
This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.